Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Tim Cohen on the line. Tim, how are you? Hey, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Very I'm well. awesome. Awesome. Good stuff. Looking forward to this conversation. You do some amazing work in psychology, the healthcare space, and a variety of different things. So why don't you share with the audience a little bit about you, and then we'll dive right in. Yeah, my, uh, thanks very much. Really glad to be here. Uh, my background uh, originally began in organizational psychology, and I was doing change and strategy work uh, sort of led me into healthcare, and I began to work in the healthcare industry back during the Clinton administration, sort of the, the first time at least we began major reform efforts that obviously hit a wall. Uh, somewhere along the way, I figured out that uh, I knew how to talk to doctors, and so we ended up about 20 years ago, my partner and I launching a company that helps physicians with their back office administrative work. So we are in possibly the least sexy part of healthcare. I, I joke that we're plumbers, um, but like plumbing, nobody thinks about it uh, until it doesn't work. And so our job is to help our clients, which are independent physician practices from one to 200 providers across the country, uh, get paid for the work that they do. Um, so we're not inventing new molecules, we're not taking care of patients, uh, but we're sitting in the background trying to help the people that do. Having worked in healthcare for a long time, uh, and mostly in Canada, but you know, originally coming from the U.S. and, and working with uh, U.S.-based physician as well, the compensation part is a big, big deal. It's it's big for everybody. It doesn't matter if you're a physician or a nurse or a lawyer or a janitor or whatever. Compensation is a big deal. But with physicians and billing and coding and all of that stuff, it is a administrative nightmare. Uh, for many, and collecting revenue um, is a full-time task. I, I remember a yeah. physician that worked in our clinic, um, Canadian clinic, but uh, practiced in the U.S. for over two decades. You know, he, he said, you know, on, on a good, you know, good month, he might be able to collect maybe fifty or sixty percent of what he built. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, in you know other industries, okay, you're going to do all of this work, but we're only going to pay you half of what you should get. Right. And it, 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 I just looked at him like, that's so wrong. It, it real, it, it's just that it shouldn't be that way. And, you know, there's, we could talk for hours on all the reasons why it, it happens the way that it does. But uh, the fact that, you know, you're helping physicians earn, you know, the living that they deserve because they put in a ton of time. Medical right. school is not cheap and it's not quick. Uh, so, you know, and, and they are providing a care that literally keeps you alive. That's, that's kind of an important role. So right. physician well-being, both from a financial standpoint, but also from a mental and a physical standpoint, uh, is something that's imperative for society. And, you know, during yeah. this pandemic, we know that it's been really taxing uh, to our healthcare professionals for sure. Yeah, if you try to explain how healthcare reimbursement for doctors and hospitals works to somebody from outside the industry, after about three or four minutes, their eyes will glaze over and, and they will say, you know, surely I am misunderstanding because what you said makes no sense. 
And now uh, the net means you got it. I mean, we it, it really feels like we locked a, a bunch of people in a room and didn't feed them for weeks and played bad you know, rap music, turned the lights off and on and did everything we could to make them mad and then said, now design the worst possible system you could. I guess I shouldn't be uh, too critical of it because if it worked in a more rational way, we probably wouldn't have a business. So part of our job uh, is to take that mess uh, off the hands of our clients. But the interesting thing, the reason we ended up in this space is healthcare is an industry that is dominated by really, really big entities. You know, you start with the federal government with Medicare, Medicaid at the state level, and then you have, you know, massive insurance companies, hospital systems, pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies. And from an economic standpoint, there, there's logic on why we need those large entities, right? The federal government plays a role of really transferring income to help us share the burden of healthcare with the elderly and the poor through Medicare and Medicaid. I, I think most of us would say, yeah, as a society, we, we want to do that. Um, insurance companies uh, need to be large for you know, managing risk because healthcare costs are not equally distributed. Uh, 5% of our population, so about 16 million people out of our 320 million, account for half of our total spending. So, so we've got a small number of people that are uh, exceedingly sick and ill, and we need mechanisms for the other 95% of us that account for the other half of spending to help. So we need large organizations. We need people who can invest in R&D as we've seen, you know, for example, with the vaccines coming through the pandemic. But our premise is um, in a world with those giant entities, you then end up with the most intimate and personal service in the world. Um, when a patient has a health issue, very few things get more personal to experience that with their only point of interface being me individually at a time of great need with these large monolithic entities. And so we're very pro independent physician practice. Again, our clients are from really small to, to large physician groups, but still tiny in the grand scheme of things. Because we believe patients are better served in the long run when there's that that level of interface with their provider, uh, their physician, and she's looking them in the eyes and helping them navigate what needs to happen in this time of great complexity and great fear. So we are very, very pro independent physician practice. And uh, our job is to enable that part of healthcare to thrive so that our collective healthcare ecosystem uh, gets healthier. And that's what we're trying to do. I'm thankful that you do because again, and when I worked with physicians for many years as a director or CEO of uh, the healthcare organizations that I was part of, I always told them, I want you to play doctor. Yeah. Exactly. I want you to, I want you to play in your arena um, because I certainly don't. I, I always joke on my show when I talk about this. Um, the only reason I think I passed science class in ninth grade was because Mr. Burrell did not want to see me again for another year. Um, I was not good at it. Um, and it yeah. probably didn't help about, you know, 
chasing around girls with a dissected pig. That probably wasn't a smart move on my part, but you know, ninth grade, you know, you know, boys will be boys. But at the end of the day, you want people to be able to work in their sweet spot so that they're focusing on that. And and especially with, with healthcare providers and physicians in particular, whether they're surgeons or private practice or whatever the case may be, you want them to be clear headed and focusing on the task at hand because they literally have the lives of their patients in their hands. They could make a mistake. I mean, there's checks and balances as far as, prescribing things and all of that, but still you don't want them to, you know, misdiagnose a situation because they're worrying about, okay, mortgage payments due, insurance company is doing this. This is not working. My billing clerk has been sick for two weeks. I'm behind on my billings. How am I going to cover this stuff? So real life challenges that everybody faces, guess what? Doctors are human too. They, they, they run into some of these challenges, especially the newer grads, yeah. They're just establishing their practices. It's it you, you yeah. can see it in the stress in them. So having you know you services like yours, it's like let us take care of that so you can focus and play doctor is yeah. so critical. That's so yeah. critical. Absolutely. And, and just to take that a step further, um, we not only want to re- relieve our clients of those administrative backside functions so they can focus on their patients, but to telescope out, you know, let's go back to, you know, I got into healthcare when President Clinton first said, hey, we need to fix this industry. Now that that hit a wall, kind of went defunct for a while. We went into the, you know, go-go period of the late 90s. And then you fast forward, and all of a sudden the whole country woke up and said, wow. The, and so President Obama was elected in, in large part on a mandate to, to try to fix what, what essentially was a cost problem. Here we are now, more than a decade later, um, with with both a Democrat and Republican administration. And when you look at the macro data, you, you would say, we really haven't moved the needle very far. So just to share a couple of stories on why we're we're pro-independent physician, and and that's a specific thing for our industry around a bigger principle on why we're pro-small business, we're pro-entrepreneur. Let's tell you a couple of stories of where our clients are innovating a million times all over the market, not big Washington-driven policy changes or big mergers that make the Wall Street Journal, but what's happening every day. Here, just a couple of stories. So, you know, we've got um, we've got surgeons, for example, that are are working to reduce the cost of surgery. By taking surgeries that used to have to put you in the hospital for four or five days, really, really expensive bill. And with the advent of you know, new technology, but new business models, some of those things are being moved to surgery centers now very safely and, and done as day surgeries. And so one, a patient who might have a high deductible directly financially benefits that that total package now costs a fraction of what it did. Two, and better clinical outcomes because, you know, one dirty little secret is a hospital is a great place to be when you're sick, but bad things happen when you're in a hospital. And so the shorter we can have you experiencing some of those risks, the better. And then the third thing is, is from a patient experience standpoint, um, you end up back at home, uh, not in a hospital bed, 
and that's just a better thing all around. And so we want those kind of stories all over the place. Uh, we have a uh, large pain management group that is running at the opioid crisis, not away from it. Um, we have an opioid problem, uh, as we all know, and but for the pandemic pushing it off stage, it was our number one public health issue over the last several years, and it, it hasn't gone away just because we're not talking about it due to the pandemic. And we've got a group uh, of pain management doctors using their own data, uh, best practices out of their specialty that are moving patients uh, off of opioids uh, to other treatment uh, protocols. Patients that need to stay on opioids are moving from uh, high morphine equivalents to lower. They're moving from things that are more addictive to less addictive. They're getting a better comprehensive management of that so that, yes, we'll keep you on opioids, but we want to manage addiction risk and overdose risk and those types of things. And again, these are not uh, public policy level changes. It's groups of doctors in their practice sharing data uh, and, and making adjustments in the field and feeding that back. And then those become clinical best practices that that group uses. And then they begin to share in their industry. Uh, we have a spe a, a cardiology specialist over here and a cell pulmonary specialist over here. But who helps me put that together and chart a path forward around my setting down together like it's not one 800 call my insurance company um it's two humans you know in the intimacy of an office going here's how we're going to take you forward so i can tell stories like that but but what excites me about all those is providers on the edge of our healthcare system in direct contact with patients in real time trying to figure out how to solve the problem better care Better client, a better patient experience at a lower cost. And we're just, I, I'm excited that those are the kind of things that are going to move our health system forward. And we're seeing those kind of innovations and just small incremental improvements happening all over the place. And one of the positives, if there can be, of this pandemic is it's moved forward. You know, the use of technology. There was a lot of virtual visits that you know, mm -hmm. I know a lot of physicians personally that you know, said that they never would consider doing that. Well, they were kind of forced to. And yeah. now, now they realize, wait a minute, this is actually mm -hmm. beneficial. Um, it, it allows me to do some things. I know some, you know, physicians have said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take a smaller footprint of mm -hmm. where I need to be in the mm -hmm. clinic. Cause a lot of my patients that I visit, you know, are, you know, based on the demographics and, and the types of patients they have, a lot of it is, you know, virtual friendly and and they can do some things so it's saving them some money you know from right. an overhead cost and it's right. also you know, streamlining things better I mean, even my own you know personal physician i haven't seen her in you know a couple years now you know we've right. done virtual calls and you know right. we go over some things and if i need something then she'll prescribe it or you know advise me no let's let's try this instead uh, and you know it's great, and I you yeah. know I I love it. And and the thing of it is, it it's really convenient. She's her office is literally across the street from me, so it's not like I have this long commute. It's you know I probably have to wait longer on the elevator than to actually get into the clinic. So where yeah. where my condo building is, and respect to her office, 
but it, it's still, you know, an, an opportunity for efficiency. And um, it's those efficiencies that one reduce the stress the physicians are facing and prevents burnout, which I know is a huge, huge problem in, in healthcare. Uh, but ultimately it also allows them to practice medicine. And one of the key components of it is to, you know, look at the information, say, okay, you know, let's try this different treatment thing. Cause when they're rushed and they, they feel that they have to see extra patients to make up because their billings aren't being managed well, Right. It just creates a lot of potential for missing things or not being able to spend the time that they they really want to. Every right. physician I've ever encountered, they, they love what they do. They love yeah. practicing medicine. They love being a physician. They love doing that work and, and studying things and researching things. And so, so as a society, and yeah. you, know, you know how the system is designed, we want to make it where they can really sing and really shine in what they do because it's going to improve the outcomes of everybody's health, which in turn makes us healthier, which makes us able to contribute to society better. It has such a positive ripple effect. And, you know, the work that you're doing is a crucial component of that. There was, there were a lot of people prior to the pandemic that had been forecasting for a long time, this adoption of a couple of uh, administrative issues. And when the pandemic hit, uh, the Trump administration removed all of those, and all of a sudden the floodgates opened. And, and a lot of that was out of necessity. And so uh, in the spring, and we tracked you know, the data across all of our clients, we, we went from you know, virtually zero telemedicine visits to at one point about 30% of our volume was telemedicine. Now, it's come back down, but it's found a baseline that most people believe, you know, is going to be the new normal and it may continue to slowly increase from there. But, but here's where I think the entrepreneurial part of the equation becomes really, really important. Yes, we needed the administration and the Biden administration has kept these, uh, these temporary changes in place for now. And I think some of them will be permanent. We needed a couple of policy level barriers removed. But once that happened, the real innovation around telemedicine is happening, again, not at the policy level, not at the central planning level. There are a million experiments going on out in the market. Now, some of those are, are big entities backed by a lot of equity that are building national telemedicine players. And so we're going to have new entrants into the market. And, and that's a good thing. Uh, even if it's threatening to some established providers. But at the same time, many, many physician groups are in the sandbox every day trying to figure out more effective ways to deploy telemedicine into their practice. And there are great stories from, you know, on, on one end, people that are really kind of doing the same thing, just using a telemedicine visit. It feels to the patient kind of the same type deal. But on the other hand, we're seeing people with, you know, experimenting with radically different models on how they use retiring providers that, you know, may want to cut their time back, uh, but do some telemedicine visits. Uh, we're seeing practices begin to, you know, come together and support one another in that. We're finding people that are literally recruiting 
you know, physicians and nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants that have a skill set that makes them effective, more effective in a telemedicine uh, way. Uh, we're seeing, you know, some of our surgery practices, for example, that are taking the surgeons out of some of those and letting them concentrate on being surgeons, which is where their interest and skills are, and then marrying them with people who can do the pre-op and post-op visit during telemedicine, uh, telemedicine exam. So again, I love that story because it has triggered experimentation and innovation by entrepreneurial providers all over the place. And they're doing some really you know, cool things that nobody would have dreamed up on their own. And they try and they fail and they adjust on the fly and it's amazing yeah, that the entrepreneurial spirit um, is made its way into healthcare, uh, which I think is going to make things more efficient for all of us uh, physicians, so they can, you know, truly start practicing medicine and, and not have to worry about so much of the administrative side of things. So, Tim, I've loved our conversation today. Where can people find out more about you and this awesome work you're doing? You know, uh, website's probably the best place to start, A-L-N-M-M. Sorry for that being a little uh, auditory confusing. Alan, Larry, Nancy, Mary, Mary dot com. Uh, we want to talk what you're doing to try to make healthcare uh, as they take care of their patients in better ways. Awesome. And I'll definitely have that in the show notes. So, Tim, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you and this amazing work you're doing. Michael, thanks. Appreciate the conversation that uh, you're helping facilitate around leaders, particularly in small business like us, uh, just out there fighting a good fight. We're glad to join the dialogue today. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of the Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.